Well, if you can remember, we've been going through a, a series in the book of Ephesians. We are well into it. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2 today, um, finishing up this, uh, this portion of the, this book. Uh, it's been an amazing book so far. I, this, like I said, a lot of times the, the book that I'm preaching becomes my favorite book, and it's my favorite book right now, um, just because it has so much good content in it. So far in the book of Ephesians, we've seen that God, from all eternity past, has designed this great grand plan uh, to display his glory within a people he has redeemed. Uh, He he planned that before the foundations of the world, before we even mess things up. God had a plan to uh, save us and redeem us and to bring his glory through us as the church. And we saw that that grand plan ends up, we need to know some things about that grand plan, how it is that we participate in it, how we're swept up in this love story uh, that God has with his people. We saw that Paul prayed for strength and power um, for us, that we would understand the power that's at work in us, that was at work in Christ. He went on from there to talk about individual salvation. Right? Last week we looked and saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God raised us up with Christ, which brings us to this next point. It honestly is the most logical next step, which is why Paul goes there. Um, Last week, we saw our individual relationship with God like this, right? We have a relationship with God because we were sinners, but in Christ, he has raised us up. Now, that vertical relationship that we have with the Lord necessarily impacts our relationships horizontally. Say that again. Our vertical relationship with the, with the Lord directly impacts our horizontal relationships with other people. So what we're going to see today is that our individual union with Christ's death and his resurrection results in a corporate union with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our, our relationship with God results in a relationship with other people. Let me read this passage, and hopefully as I read through it, you're going to just start to see, man, that, that is so true. So let's read this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let me read that for you. It says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, we might, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom... 
The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a beautiful passage that speaks about our reconciliation with God and with our fellow man. Paul reminds these Ephesians that there was a division that existed before they were Christians. He calls them Gentiles. Now, this is just a generic term for a non-Jew. Um, so if you're a Greek, you're a Gentile. If you're a Roman, you're a Gentile. If you're a Chinese, you're a Gentile. If you're a Northern European, you're a Gentile. Like That was just the term that the Jews used for outsiders. The reason being, God wanted the Jewish people to be separated from Gentiles. And that's because um, before knowing God, they worshipped other gods. They worshipped other gods, and God did not want them to mix with them, so they would be influenced to worship their gods. So God commanded them to stay away and, and to separate from them. But notice what Paul does say here. Um, he starts off with a therefore, which obviously therefore always connects you to what was just said. So we just said individual um, union with Christ therefore results in what we're going to talk about today. So he says, therefore, and he says, but remember at one time you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Paul is in some way saying that this circumcision, this marker that God had given to identify who God's people was, was only skin deep, right? It's only skin deep. Um, they were called the circumcision by what was called the uncircumcision. So this, this, this identifying marker that was supposed to point to who God's people were was only a skin deep thing. And he's going to go on to point that, no, we need a connection with God. We need a marker with God that's more clear than that. So it goes on from there to just to make the point that these people were not in the club, in, so to speak. He's reminding these Ephesians, hey, remember at one time you weren't in the club. And if we think of a club like a, like a Sam's Club membership, if you ever try to go to Sam's Club and buy something just for the fun of it, you don't get that benefit, right? Because you're not in that club. Um, Paul's making kind of the same point. Hey, you guys, you Gentiles, at one time you were separated from God. You weren't part of the people of God. Therefore, you didn't have the benefits of being God's people. And what are some of those benefits? Well, he reminds them, hey, you were at one time when you were separated from Christ, you had, you were separated from Christ, that word Christ. He doesn't say separated from Jesus, although that is true. He uses the term Christ. Christ is just a Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah. Okay, so the, the Gentiles were separated from a Messiah. Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis, which is what I like to do often, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, after we fell, God starts giving out um, punishments or, or, or um, results for the sin. He says, hey, um, you know, serpent's going to crawl on his belly. Man's going to have to work the ground. But he gives a special command to the woman. It says that she's going to have pain in childbearing, but there's going to be someone of her offspring that would come and crush the serpent's head. And we know that's the first prophecy in the Bible of Jesus. Someone who would be born of woman who would crush sin and Satan all the way back in Genesis 3. And then you can take a line, you can take a string and just trace it all the way through the Old Testament of the people having a hope in someone that's going to come and fix stuff. Uh, after Adam and Eve, you know, there was Noah and he was the only righteous one. But then he fell right after the flood. And then there was Abraham who came along um, 
Uh, but we know that he fell multiple times. Jacob after him, David after him. All these men who rose up within the people of God and people thought, is this the Messiah? Is this the one to come? But none of them were because they all failed. But Christ, the true Messiah, truly did bring peace, truly did crush Satan's head on the cross, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But he's making the point to them, you guys didn't have anybody to look to before you were in Christ, you Gentiles. You didn't have a hope of someone who was going to come and crush the things that, that bring sadness in our world. So they had no Christ and they had no citizenship. Verse 12 says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Um, I don't know about you guys, but for me growing up, um, it, something blew my mind um, when I started studying geography. And they started telling us the names of countries that weren't the names I called them. And I think that's just an American self-centered kind of thing. I was like, when I found out Germany is not called Germany in Germany, then, you know, it's Deutschland. I was like, what? They, they don't they don't use our word for it. And what blew my mind even more than that is when I found out there are people in this world who actually don't have borders where they can say this is our place. This is our place. There are people in this world who are, in some sense, countryless, landless. Um, we, when I was in college, we met a group of people called the Hmong people. Um, there's a, a large contingency of them around the Tahlequah area. And it blew my mind as I got to know them that, you know, they talked about how they were in Laos and Myanmar and that area, but they, they have no homeland now. That, was, that blew my mind. And Paul's making the point to the Gentiles, hey, there was a point when you didn't have a citizenship. You didn't have a homeland. If you can imagine not having a place to call your own, not having a, a nation to say, I'm a part of this group, that would be heartbreaking. And Paul is reminding them, this is the state you were in spiritually before Christ. You had no citizenship, um, no borders, no place to call your own, no group of people to, to receive benefits from. And what a place to be, because, or what a, what a poor place to be, because he makes the point, you were alienated from the from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't citizens, and therefore, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. What were those? It was that promise that we talked about through, through Jesus and then made through covenants. That, hey, I'm going, God making a promise. I'm going to fix all the wrong in this world. And can you imagine not having a hope like that? And Paul said, hey, the Jews, we had that hope. We had a way that we could relate with God through the law. It was a way that we could be close to him. The law was good. And they were separated from it, separated from those covenants, separated from those promises. And that resulted in, if you have no Christ and no citizenship, you have no hope, which is what he finishes with in verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. No Christ, no covenant, no God. People are without hope, if that's the case. And we can think that really, I think, applies to our world we can know people, maybe you're here under the sound of my voice and you, you don't have a relationship with God. Um, you, can, you can testify to the hopelessness that is in this world. Um, the things of this world don't last. The things that are promised by this world don't last. And there's not a hope that exists there. Not a hope from freedom from the sin that, that crushes your family. Not a hope from the freedom of death that takes loved ones. Uh, with no hope, life can be despairing. So as Christians, as what Paul's doing for these Christians and what we need to do as Christians is to think back. There was a time when we were disconnected from God. 
when in one sense we were unplugged from the outlet. Uh, we were not receiving power. We're not receiving life from God. We were disconnected. And we need to remember that. Why? I think to remind us that there are people who don't have that connection yet. There are people within this town, um, within our spheres of influence, our circles, that don't know Christ. They're as separated from Christ as these Gentiles were at the moment, right? They, they, they have no hope. No, they don't, don't understand the promises that God has made for them. They don't have a hope of a Messiah that can deliver them from the sin that, that crushes them under the weight of sin. Uh, they don't have that hope. And who are the ones that can bring that to them? Those who have trusted in Christ, who have been given the gift of life. And we can turn around and give that to them. That's why we need to remember that. But I also think it, it helps us to remember that, which is what Paul is really doing here. It helps us to remember where we came from to think about where we are now, to appreciate where we are now. Sometimes you've got to look back and think, how far have I come in order to appreciate where you are right now and to value where we are? So we were, as Paul says, separated from Christ, but now we are reconciled to God. And we notice there in verse 13, a beautiful verse, another verse, if you wanted to memorize one, if you're just bored and want to memorize scripture, this is a great one. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. And again, this is like um, conjunction, junction part two. Like last week we saw there was a but God. And here's another um, big um, conjunction here that we need to appreciate and value. But now there was but Christ. And now, but now in Christ, we who were far off have been brought near. The punishment that was due for us was taken by Christ. And notice what that punishment was. It says, we've been brought near by what? Not by um, the good word of Christ, not by the, the good argument of a lawyer on our behalf, but the shed blood of God himself, opening up his veins to pour out his blood for your sin. That's the price that it took to draw you, to draw me back to God. And notice that when Jesus is spoken of here, his sacrifice is not spoken of in potential language, but actual language. It says we were brought near by the blood of Christ, what he did. Jesus dying on the cross was not a potentializer, but an actualizer. Okay, It wasn't that he, he, he has this offer and there, it's there. No, it's when he died on the cross, that did something to bring us near. It made our salvation true and real and possible. Not just that we're savable, that we were actually saved by Christ's death. He accomplished what he was sent to do, which was to bring you near to him. And because of that, because of that nearness that we now share with God, look at what we have. It says that we were brought Peace, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And in this sentence, in this case, peace is a person, right? Peace is a person that we found in Jesus. And we need peace in our life. If you go through life for very long, you start to struggle. You start to feel that, that, that anxiousness, that, that sea of storm in your heart that causes anxiety, that causes um, um, all kinds of distress in our life. And we need that peace of God. Romans 5.10 says this, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. How much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we have life in His name? So that verse tells us we were at war with God. 
Our sin, if we think of it, our sin is not just an oops, not just an accident, but it's an affront that we've committed against God, an act of treason. And when Jesus came to this world and died on the cross, he he brought us peace with God. We're no longer enemies with him. We're no longer at war with him. We are now at peace with him. We're now his friends. We're now seated at his table. And we shouldn't look at our sin as just an accident that we, oops, I committed. No, it's an egregious sin that we sin against the holy God. And that is forgiven by Christ. Yet when Christ died, he didn't just die and give us peace with God. This passage makes it clear that we also have peace with our fellow man, with other people. See, in verse 14 and 16, it says, He or who has made us both one, talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, God has made us both one in Christ. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It says that he created in himself one new man. Says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. Later on, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. God has made Jew and Gentile one. And the interesting thing is, he didn't do it by allowing Gentiles to become Jews. That's a that's a that's a really important thing that you might not think, like, oh, that's not a big deal. No. To to be a Christian, to be right with God, you don't have to become a Jewish person. You don't have to take on their rules and laws, right? Instead of saying, hey, Gentiles, you can become Jews like it was in the Old Testament. He says, no, I've created one new man in the place of two. The church is a new creation that God has made, a new people with a new identity um, that didn't exist before. That's a great thing that we as people on literally the other side of the world uh, on a completely different continent, we don't have to try to become Jewish people. No, we simply put our faith in Christ, and when we do, we're part of this one new man that God has created, that God has put together. And to be sure, this unity, what he's talking about specifically here, is an, it's, it's a religious division that existed that was expressed ethnically. Okay, so let me say what, let me say what I'm trying to say there. Um, this division that existed, God had told the Gentiles or the Jews to stay away from the Gentiles. And remember that was for a reason. Um, some of the Gentiles in that area, in, in the Canaanite Valley, those people were, were doing all kinds of sinful things. Even there, there's record of them sacrificing their children to a God called Molech. So this was a group of people that God did not want his people to be like, right? So that separation existed because of sin, because of sin, not just with God, but with each other. And as Christ comes, there was a dividing wall that existed because of that sin. But when Christ comes and he dies for our sins, now everybody can follow God if they turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Therefore, that dividing wall is broken down. That religious dividing wall is broken down. But notice that it was expressed in some sense ethnically, right? It was the Jews and then all other people. So I think that really speaks to our time in our day and age when when racial issues are talked about very often in the news, um, um, you know, over the last few years, we've just seen shootings that are blamed on racial actions, all kinds of things. Um, so race is a, is, a, is, a, is a tough issue for us. Even within this town, we're blessed with the fact that we have like, uh, I think it's close to 20 percent 
of our enrollment in school is, is Hispanic, um, not just Anglo people. Um, so race, no matter how long far we've come, can always tend to be an issue for folks. But the beauty of this passage is that it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Because this passage is just a preview of what comes in the end. In Revelation 7, it talks about a people that will stand before God from every tribe, tongue, and language who will praise God in their own language and will be together as, as one people. And the beauty is our, this, this new identity, this new citizenship that we receive in God, um, this new identity marker is not, it, it transcends where we're from or what language we speak or our family history. It transcends that. It doesn't change those things. We are still, um, we're still who we are and where we're from. Yet, this new identity in Christ transcends those things. So we're a Christian first, and then we're, um, we're our, our other ethnicity second, right? We're, we're as, our, as our scripture reading said today, we are Christian first, and then we're male and female. We're Christian first, then we're Jew and Gentile. But our true identity, the, thing, the, the, found, the, the, the core of who we are, is no longer who we're, where we're from, who we are, what language we speak, but if we are in Christ. And he gives us that new identity, that new thing to connect us. That new, that new link that connects us to one another. And he's brought us together by abolishing that, that wall of hostility that existed. So we were separated from Christ, but now we're brought near to God, second. And third, we're united as the church in Christ. So Jews and Gentiles, as it said in the beginning, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints. We are fellow citizens. We have a citizenship in the kingdom of God. So when we become believers, these Gentiles went from being foreigners to fellow citizens, to, to being, uh, having the same, uh, same passport, to having the same citizenship with one another. They were foreigners, now they're citizens. And as we think about us and our, our thoughts about being a citizen of this country, it's a great thing that we're, we're citizens of this country, the United States, considered one of the greatest nations in history. But even that citizenship that we have in this nation is nothing compared to the citizenship we have in heaven of a kingdom that will not fade. At some point, there won't be a United States. At some point, uh, there will not be the United States of America. Uh, whether it happens on this side of Christ's return or on that side of Christ's return, at some point there won't be... But the kingdom that we're brought into in Christ is an unshakable kingdom that will never fade away. We have a citizenship in a country whose history will last into eternity because of our relationship with God. And it's an honor to be a part of this kingdom. So we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Second, we're members of the household of God. We, we are brought into his home, not just allowed to live on his block, but we have a room in his house, if you want to say it that way. Uh, there, there's a bed laid out for you. Uh, you get to eat at his table. Um, you get to raid his pantry. You get to watch TV on his TV and even change the channel. You get to hold the remote, that kind of thing. You are brought into the family of God, brought into his household. And the thing about having family ties is those, those relationships, those family relationships are some of the closest that you'll ever have. People who see you all the time, you have close relationships to them. Those relationships are tight, and that's the analogy that's used about us with God and with his people. We're fellow citizens. We're also family members with one another. 
And then he finally gets to the point of saying this, that we're stones of the temple of God. As it, as it says down there in verse 21, the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're a, we're a temple of God. Uh, individual stones. Um, all when, when we're Before Christ, we're just individual stones. But as Christ's people were brought together, connected, laid on the foundation of the apostles, being Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, and the Holy Spirit is the mortar that holds the bricks together. That foundation has been laid by Christ when he came. And then those apostles after him followed in his footsteps and passed that along to us. And now the family that we exist in has a, has a family history tracing back all the way to Christ himself. And the example that he gives here is an example that he's given often in the book of Ephesians. I've talked about often here is that we are the temple where God dwells. Being a temple where God dwells. It says, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I want to encourage you to have that mindset. Every time that you gather together, whether it's on here on a Sunday morning or um, together on Sunday night at a community group or on a Wednesday night as we reach out into the community, um, Sunday school, wherever that might be, you're gathering together and you are the dwelling place for God. That's what the Bible says about the church, his people, a dwelling place for God. So remember this as we, as we end this moment, as we close, I want us to remember that Jesus, his blood actually has brought you near to God. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, his blood has brought you near to God. And it not only brought you near to God, it also brought you near to your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, for sure, if you've got a brother and sister, you know that there's times when you don't get along at every single moment. Um, my kids are a testimony to that. I was kind of an only child growing up, but I, I now I know what it was like to live in a house of brothers and sisters. And it can be tough to get along with one another. But at the end of the day, you're still brothers and sisters, right? You're still family members. And I say the same thing to us. Man, when I have membership interviews and I talk to people about our church and, and as they want to join our church, I always try to remind them at some point, somebody in this church is going to hurt your feelings. At some point, I'm going to fail you as your pastor in some way. I'm going to forget to... Um, do something, call you, whatever it might be. At some point, you're going to be failed by me or by somebody in this church. But we're not united by the fact that we're perfect to each other all the time. That's not the thing that unites us. It's that we are family members in God's family. And therefore, because that blood exists, that blood fluid in Christ's veins exists, we're connected to one another. So when we harm one another, when we hurt one another, we want to be quick to seek to maintain unity. Uh, we're going to see that at, at the beginning of chapter 4, how we, could see, how we should strive and seek to maintain unity. Um, this, this unity that's been given to us, we didn't create it, but we need to maintain it. So as we think about that, what it means to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you, don't put walls back up. The dividing wall of hostility has been knocked down uh, by Christ. That, that division that separated you from other people has been knocked down. Don't build it back up. How might we build that wall of hostility back up? Well, making a big deal out of when somebody has hurt you. That's putting a brick on the wall. Um, thinking that you have more of a connection with somebody because of your shared history rather than Christ. That's another brick on the wall. Thinking that um, 
the, your, your time, your agenda is more important than the other people in the church. That's putting another brick back up. And we can make decisions in our life that are selfless, self-seeking, that's just like building that wall between us and other people. Don't do that. Don't put, more, don't put a dividing wall back where it's been destroyed. And prioritize your allegiances. Think about the things that you need to be focused on and faithful to and pledge allegiance to the most is your citizenship in the kingdom. And that should supersede and guide every other decision that you make. For example, everybody knows I'm, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, okay? Um, and this is kind of a silly example, but if for some reason, at some point, being a Dallas Cowboys fan made it hard for me to be a Christian, I would cease to be a Cowboys fan. Does that make sense? So there may be things in your life that you are part of, participate in, um, that you can say, it's getting hard to be this and a Christian at the same time. And if that's the case, you need to prioritize that main allegiance to Christ, to this kingdom, because the things that we're committed to in this world will not last. They will not, they will not endure, but Christ's kingdom will, and we're a part of that. So prioritize your allegiance, and then think about this, finally. Treat Christians with more grace, more patience, more understanding, more forbearance, more love, more mercy, more tolerance, all for the sake of Christ. Treat people with those things because Christ has died to unite you. And don't let things of this world divide you, church. And I say this, uh, I always like to say this when I preach a, a sermon on unity. I'm thankful that I've never had to preach a sermon on unity here. If you know what I mean, I've never had to address some kind of division in the church because we've had such great unity here um, through my whole tenure here. And I praise God for it. And I'm thankful for God for it. And I'm thankful that I can preach this message before I need to preach this message, if you will. So we have Christ's blood that's brought us near to him. It's, the cross has reconciled us to God. And we're a building that's being built together as a holy temple and a cornerstone with Christ as the cornerstone. And Jesus Christ is our church's one foundation. I want to read the lyrics to you of the song we're about to sing because it's a beautiful song that speaks of the fact that, as this passage says, Jesus Christ is our only salvation. If we're going to stand as a church and be united as a church, it has to be on the foundation of Christ and nothing else. And these are the lyrics to this song. It's the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation. By water in the word, or by spirit in the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her bled and died. Second verse. Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace in doom. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits her consummation of peace forevermore. Till with this vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let's pray, folks, and we'll sing this great song about our, our one foundation. Father, we come before you and thank you for the unity 